So Money Episode 996, Laura Wong, author of Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. A lot of times we go into those situations where we're either asking for a raise or trying to get that promotion or getting that that assignment or that that project that we really want to be assigned to. And we go in and we've got all of these reasons for why we should get it. The precise way that we're going to convince our uh, the, the counterpart that we're that perfect person. And we go in there and almost like a barrage of like, here are my three best points. And here are the things that I really want you to know. And here's why you're wrong. That's really tough. It's really tough to convince somebody because you put them in a situation where they then feel like they're on the defensive and need to come up with their best points. How can you get the obstacles and adversities that are working against you to actually work for you? Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today is Laura Wong. She's a professor at Harvard Business School who's spent her career studying implicit bias in entrepreneurship and in the workplace. And from her research, she's found that the most successful people in the world are able to shape their perceived weaknesses into strengths and gain an edge in any situation. And you just heard her talk about asking for a raise, convincing your boss of your worth. How do you implement your edge in those conversations? Her book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage, comes out this week. Laura's research has been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Forbes. And she was named one of the 40 best business school professors under the age of 40 by Poets and Quants. Here's Laura Wong. Laura Wong, welcome to So Money. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Congratulations on your book. It's called Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Now, there are a lot of popular books out there right now talking about how people can be more successful, uh, whether that's developing grit, as uh, Angela Duckworth has uh, talked about. Tell us how Edge really takes the conversation forward. Uh, This is fascinating because so many of us come to, whether it's the workplace or relationships or our own personal life, with feelings of because we grew up with adversity that maybe we're not worthy of some of the experiences. How does Edge help us to work through all of those problems? Yeah, I mean, at some point in our lives, we sort of have this recognition that some people naturally have an advantage and other people sort of have to create one for themselves. And we're taught from a really young age that success is about hard work, right? You spoke about hard work and grit and perseverance. And these are things that we're taught really young, from a young age, that if you want to achieve success, if you want to have um, the outcomes that you desire to work hard, right? You can take People who are at the top of their game, people who are record world record holders or people who are executives at the top of their organizations. And you ask them, how did you achieve your success? And inevitably, they'll say, you know, just keep working hard. I worked hard. The problem is that hard work doesn't always speak for itself. And we come to this realization that a lot of times we put in the hard work, we put in the effort and 
hard work isn't enough. It leaves us frustrated. It leaves us frustrated because we see that we're putting just as much hard work in, if not more than somebody else, but then the rewards are still going to that other person. And that's because it's often these decisions and these outcomes are often driven by the signals and the perceptions and the stereotypes Mm -hmm. of others. How do we control other people's perceptions of us? Because people are also coming to the world with their own biases, right? And their own preconceptions and notions of who we necessarily have to be because of maybe our backgrounds or how we're dressed or how we speak or how we look. And so how do we feel more in control of that. Yeah. I mean, we when we recognize that it's often about the signals and perceptions and stereotypes of others, then we can actually flip those stereotypes and obstacles in our favor. That's when we can find and create our own edge. So what it encompasses is really knowing both who we are and what our strengths and our weaknesses are, but also knowing and recognizing that a lot of the decisions and the outcomes are based on we're in this we live in this social world where it's about interpersonal relationships and interpersonal interactions and no matter what situation we're in we're going to be in these situations where other people are determining outcomes based on their perceptions based on their backgrounds and but you know when we when we recognize this we also can flip those perceptions that others have of us and turn those underestimated strengths and weaknesses upside down so that we can succeed in both business and in life. You have this anecdote in the book about a friend, Beatrice, and how she was able to successfully turn things around for herself. Can you t- can you walk us through that? Because I think that's pretty relatable to a lot of us listening. Yeah. I mean, so Beatrice was a classmate of mine um, when we were getting our MBAs together. And, you know, this book was really, you know, it came together from a lot of my research that I had done on people who are disadvantaged or underestimated or faced challenges, but also the stories of people who have, you know, had to face adversity and and had to uh, been able to, through that adversity, create their own advantage. And Beatrice was one of, you know, she was, I just, I, I saw her and immediately I was like, this, this, this woman, she's has it together. She's sophisticated, she's smart, and she's She's thoughtful. And, um, you know, it was only much later that I got to know her much better. And she told me about how she grew up in a really small town in Spain and was a bookkeeper. And she was a bookkeeper in the, the next largest city from where she was living. And she had, for all essential purposes, made it, right? People in that, in this small village didn't really leave. Um, the fact that she had this job in the, in one of these big cities was um, this amazing accomplishment. And, um, you know, and she, but, but she decided that she wanted to actually try and go somewhere else. So she tried and moved to Munich, Germany, um, didn't speak German at all, tried to find a job, basically went off on her own and started applying for jobs and, you know, faced a lot of, of, of adversity. She worked really hard, tried to get lots of interviews, but, you know, she, she, you know, people had these perceptions of her that, that um, she wasn't able to do it, that she wasn't accomplished. And so she did a, a, a bunch of interviews um, and she realized at some point that, um, you know, she started recognizing some of the questions. Like she, she would hear the same questions being asked of her over and over again. She also recognized that a lot of the interviewers would um, end up doing a lot of the talking as they realized that she 
once they realized that her German wasn't as strong, that they would do a lot of the talking. And then she one interview at this company called Goldman Sachs. She's getting interviewed um, and she's sort of interacting with this person and starts to guide his perceptions of who she is. And not that she couldn't speak the language, but that, you know, she could sort of repeat these phrases that she heard. And she recognized that this was a receptionist role where they had lots of people coming from all different countries who didn't necessarily speak German. She just would have to interact with lots of people and, and be a person that was, was able to point them in the right direction. And she started guiding that narrative around who she is and, and that she wasn't just from this small town, but that she was really accomplished and could was, was really great at interacting with people from all different cultures and all different countries and all different languages and using these sort of phrases phrases and and things that she had heard in her prior interview. And in fact, not only did she get that job, but she was the first person who ever went from a receptionist person moving to a frontline analyst position. She then got promoted a number of times, worked in private wealth management and did incredibly well, all because she kind of recognized that you know, she knew what her strengths were and she knew what the perceptions were of her and that if she could manage and guide that process... Well, so you say that what helped her was having this self-reflection and knowing herself, which I, I think is easier said than done sometimes, because we all know we all have that friend who we feel like doesn't have a sense of herself or himself, <laughs> or at least like how they're projecting. Yeah. Um, and so would you have any recommendations for how we can become more self-aware so that we can be more successful in developing our edge. Yeah, I mean, the self-awareness piece of it is is really critical, but it's not just the self-awareness of yourself. It's also the self-awareness of who you are in relation to your counterpart, the people that you're interacting with. That's how you really create your own edge by knowing that it's this interpersonal relationship and that a lot of things are not just dictated by who you are, but it's also who that other person is as well. And so I always say that, Anyone can do this. Anyone can learn this. Anyone can learn learn how to really understand themselves and, and that of, of others. But not everyone is willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that willingness is that, you know, a lot of times we are in situations and, you know, we face some sort of backlash or we say the wrong thing or we embarrass ourselves. And then we say, oh man, we're like, we're never doing that again. We're never going to put ourselves in that situation again. But getting past that, that's when you actually start to understand who you are and start to figure out patterns and start to figure out, you know, the, the different ways in which people do see you. You have this saying that is life rhymes yeah. and a personal story to go with it. So can you tell us first what you mean by life rhymes and then what is your personal experience? You know, I say often that indeed life rhymes. We, we have these experiences. These experiences seem to repeat themselves where we have another experience that reminds us of that same feeling or that same, you know, uncomfortableness or something that didn't quite sit right, right? This is where we really need to be understanding what's happening. That's where we develop that self-awareness. And I remember, for example, when I was um, a child, like third or fourth grade that we would take these standardized tests in school. And I remember that my teacher had come to me and she was like, you scored really high on your math and English language arts standardized tests. And she was really sort of surprised. And she was like, you know, you scored 
higher than we normally see. And these scores by, you know, sort of state regulations or state cutoffs would require us to put you into the gifted and talented program at our school. And I sort of, you know, I didn't really know what was going on then. And I was sort of like, oh, uh, you know, okay, great. And, and she said, but there must be some mistake, you know, um, because we typically only have students go into the gifted and talented program when it's recommended by a teacher because test scores are never this high. There must be some mistake, right? And I was in this public school in the middle of nowhere. And so she brought the principal in and the principal sort of confirmed what she was saying. She's like, this must be wrong. And so we're going to give you more tests. So they had me take an additional test for math, an additional test for reading and language arts. And again, I scored high enough to warrant me being in the gifted and talented program. They brought my parents in and they said, there's, there's just, we have an issue here. She doesn't speak English well enough to be placed into our gifted and talented program. And so what we're going to do is we're going to put her in the program, but just for half, just for math. And, and I remember sort of not knowing what was happening there, but just getting this, just that feeling, you know, of something doesn't feel right or something doesn't feel good about this. You know, I did speak English, but it was sort of assumed that I was Asian. I was good at math, but I wasn't going to be good at English. The same thing sort of, I had a similar situation in high school. And then in college, again, I was in this university writing class. It was a required class. The professor, the first assignment, we had to do this writing assignment and I turned it in um, and I got a really low grade on it. And I asked the professor about that grade and he said, you know, it's fine because you don't speak English. And so that's part of what this course is going to be about. It's going to be about teaching you to speak better and write better. Um, And it was that same feeling, that same feeling of, but, but I do. Microaggressions as we now know them to be. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And so, but then I was sort of more equipped to sort of understand what it was and put a label on what that feeling was. And so then in the second writing assignment, I did the whole essay about how English was, it didn't come naturally to me. And it was something that I was working really hard on. And it was only by the grace of this course and this professor that I would develop (laughs) into a good writer. And he didn't kind of interpret, luckily he didn't interpret any of my sarcasm or any of the sort of tongue in cheek um, type of writing, but you know, I did much better and got a much higher grade and sort of guided him to <laughs> the grade that I wanted to be getting. And so you start to understand how people see you. You start to see the perceptions that people see have of you in certain contexts or in certain environments. And that's where you just like these biases and and disadvantages are the poison. They're also mm-hmm. the anecdote. We can flip them in our favor and reposition them and repurpose them in a way that helps us in a way that we can't that we can't do with something that's hard data that's analytical there's an aspect to this which is controlling your narrative owning your background whatever that in, entailed um, learning from it self-reflection but you know at the end of the day, there are some things that you can't control, which is your accent, the color of your skin, your gender, your age. And sometimes, unfortunately, those factors that we cannot change that are very forward-facing create missed opportunities for us because there is that sort of, as you mentioned, like that bias, uh, implicit bias that we uh, confront every day. So 
is it to say that there is a limit to how much you can impact your own life with your own edge? That at the end of the day, also it has to happen simultaneous is more inclusiveness, more acceptance, more all the things so that so that you don't feel like you're doing all the work. Yeah. I mean, so we know, we know that we have imperfect systems, right? We know that there's this myth of meritocracy to some extent. The the power of this is that even as we know that systems are not going to change, and even if it does, it might not be changing in a way that we think that they should or that they will, we can really empower ourselves to to make that difference, that from within the system, we can confront it as it is to really impact change. And, you know, you mentioned things like accent and gender and race. Those are the typical cast of characters, right? Um, Race and ethnicity, class, sexual orientation. um, These are absolutely things, but everyone has something. This This is something I say often, right? That, you know, no matter who we are, and what traits we bring into a situation or what it is, people are going to have perceptions of us. You know, just taking accent, for an, for example, I've done a lot of research on people who have um, accents or non-standard American accents. And, you know, what I found is that a lot of times we think about people with accents as not being able to communicate as well, that those are the sort of perceptions that we have of you know, if we happen to be someone with an accent, but there's also lots of other perceptions that people have of us, things like we're not going to be as innovative or think outside the box or be as good at teamwork or interpersonally effective. And those are situations where we can nonetheless flip and redirect things in our favor, right? When you recognize that people may see you, for example, as not being as interpersonally influential, that's when you can go into an interview situation and say things like, you know, let me tell you about a time when I fought for resources for my team. Or let me tell you about a time at, at where I was the leader of a, of a team and I didn't stop until we had the deal closed. Right? You're saying, I'm in a very benign way. Let me give you examples. Let me give you proof points of how I am exactly what you want and that I can do all of the things that you would expect me to do and that I can really enrich and provide value to your organization. Let's take this to a very to a scenario that's very near and dear to many of us on this podcast, which is asking for a raise or negotiating your worth, or if you're an entrepreneur, telling a client what it costs to hire you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can feel like we're our worst enemy when it comes to those conversations because of so many mind blocks and whatever we're bringing into that conversation lack of self-worth, a lack of maybe even just research, nervousness, our nerves. And so in order to be successful in that scenario, which I think a lot of us want to be, what is your advice as far as having an edge in that conversation so that you feel in control and that you can hopefully be convincing? Yeah. I mean, there's two things really. The first is being prepared, but not too prepared right? A lot of times we go into those situations where we're either asking for a raise or trying to get that promotion or getting that that assignment or that that project that we really want to be assigned to. And we go in and we've got all of these reasons for why we should get it. Or we have all of these things that we've thought of in your in our head to, you know, as the the precise way that we're going to convince our the, the counterpart 
um, that we're that perfect person. And we go in there and almost like a barrage of like, here are my three best points and here are the things that I really want you to know and here's why you're wrong. That's really tough. It's really tough to convince somebody because you put them in a situation where they then feel like they're on the defensive and need to come up with their best points. The second thing is a lot of times when people give their rationale or giving their explanations of why you're not getting that raise, you're often not getting at the heart of what the real reason is. Or when you're not getting the promotion, it's going to somebody else. You're not getting at the heart of why of why that is. So having that conversation and having it be much more of a inquisitive conversation all the way leading up to you know, that decision being made is much more effective, right? Understanding like where, what is it that they want that person to, you know, if you're looking for that promotion to, you know, senior marketing, VP of marketing, for example, what is it that they think is most critical that that VP of marketing does and has? And what are those aspects? And what do they think that you're missing? Because then you can actually go into situations and show how you have those very qualities that they might think you're missing. There was this woman who, in a very similar situation, she knew that her, her immediate supervisor was going to be getting, was getting promoted and that he then would be promoting someone within their team to have his role. And she really wanted to get promoted into that role. So she was having this one-on-one conversation with her supervisor and was saying, you know, what are you, you know, in a very conversational way, what are the things that you think that I'm missing in order to have your position, right? What do you think the things are that I'm missing that would enable me to be successful in a role like the one you have? And he told her that he thought that she was weak in interacting with clients. And so, you know, she she then tried to make sure that she had lots of client facing experiences, lots of opportunities to kind of show how she was really enjoyed and was good at interacting with clients. And, you know, when that decision came came to to be and he had to make that decision on who to put in his old role, but she was the one who was managing their most important client. She was the one who was their go to person. And so it was natural that she would kind of fit into that role. You have an incredible academic background, Laura, from you have an electrical engineering master's, bachelor's from both from Duke, an MBA from um, INSEED, and a PhD from UC Irvine. And because I'm a nosy financial podcaster, I have to ask, how did you afford so much school? There's got to be a story there. <laughs> There's absolutely a story. And it wasn't pretty. <laughs> you know, so I um, was very, very fortunate um, and I'm really grateful to have had some scholarships um, for for college when I went to Duke. So thank you to the <laughs> IBM Watson um, Foundation for, for those scholarships. Um, and then in addition, I had to take out tons of student loans and also had work-study positions, part-time jobs on the side as well. So I was working about 20 to 30 hours a week while I was in school. So I was working at the housing office on campus. Um, I was also working as an intern, um, building servers, and was just doing a variety of different things to sort of make sure that I had the, the tuition and the cost of you know money for housing and all of those sorts of things. And so when I finished college, I still had lots of loans that I had to repay. Um, I went into engineering and my first job was as an engineer 
And then shortly after, I went into an MBA program, as you mentioned, where I accumulated even more student debt. And when I was in my MBA program, that's when I realized that I wanted to go into academia and become a professor. You know, I had finally, you know, I had never known that it was a, that was even an option, that that was like a career that I could do. I was doing research with a professor there and just really fell in love with it. But again, I had all these student loans. So I asked all my classmates, I said, what's the quickest way to pay off student loans? And everyone was like, go into iBanking, go into iBanking. And, you know, this is how clueless I was. I remember turning to a friend and was like, wow, this internet banking thing is really big. Not even knowing. I mean, this was a long time ago. So internet banking was sort of this up and coming thing, but not knowing that iBanking stood for investment banking. But I followed that advice and I went into investment banking and tried to pay off as many student loans as I could. And as soon as I did, I then went into um, a PhD program where our stipend is barely enough to cover housing and food. Um, I also had an 11-month-old baby at that time, and my husband had decided to start his own company. So he wasn't making a salary, and we were in the middle of this economic recession. So it was quite quite an experience. Like, I remember it so fondly as well. Like, there's something really just beautiful about that time. And we just kind of, you just try and chip away at it. You just try and chip away at, paying off your debt, trying to make ends meet, knowing that, especially when you're working on something and you're doing something that really is real and and is real to you, that it will just continue chipping away at it and it will, you'll get there. You know, I know everyone has their own version of this story and and some are, you know, some are even more difficult and, and you know, but it, it's just believe in what you're working on and just find a way to little by little do it. So, so that's sort of, that's sort of my, my story of how I did it. What I'm also hearing is do the work that might even feel not very you, <laughs> like investment banking probably is not your favorite thing in the world, but it does pay. And, and people who I've interviewed on this show who have paid off so much student loan debt, they tell me very bluntly, like we got uncomfortable. We had to take on jobs that, you know, we just realized was temporary. We didn't love it, but we had, to your point, um, our eye on the prize. Uh, We worked crazy hours. We moved, we sold things. You have to put in the uncomfortable work sometimes to achieve your dream. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. I hope I wasn't presumptuous to think that you didn't come from, you know, a billion, like a, a trust fund to send you to all of those oh, <laughs> programs. If only, if only that could have been right. my story. And I would have said, you know, and then it was really difficult. My trust fund was starting to dip into the millions instead of the billions. Yeah. And, you but know, also, you all- know what I would say to that? I wouldn't poo-poo that. I'd say good for you yeah. for using that money to make an impact on the world and to educate yourself and to be an example and a leader. I think that sometimes we don't give credit enough to our our opportunities and resources. I mean, going back to your book, well, I mean, if that is your edge, that is like what, leverage it. Yeah, you know? that's, well, that's exactly what I mean where when I say everybody has something, right? Everyone has a different story. Everyone has a different narrative. And everyone is going to have others who make perce- have perceptions and make attributions of them, no matter who they are. Um, And I just think that when we remember that we all have goals, we all have dreams and we all have realities and responsibilities. And sometimes, sometimes you have to wait, just make sure that you're not waiting too long, right? Make sure that you're not getting caught up in, 
you know, it would have been very easy for me to get caught up in the next bonus or the next, you know, something vesting that's coming along when I was working in investment banking, right? It's very easy to get caught up in the bonuses and the, but, you know, if you remember that everybody has something and that it's okay to wait, it's not wait too long. That's when you can really, you know, make it powerful and and make it what you want. Laura, Huang, thank you so much for joining us. Congrats. Your book comes out tomorrow. Very exciting. It's called, everyone, again, it's called Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. You can learn more about Laura on her website, laurawong.net. She's also on Twitter at LauraWongLA. And the book, again, is called Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. All this information is on somoneypodcast.com. While you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your questions for our Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money. Money.